0: Listener-supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. All right, people. Welcome to the end of a long, 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 long week. Thursday alone felt like a month. If you're a fan of the markets, maybe you're a little down. Literally. If you're a follower of the Russia investigation, the Moscow Project letter earlier in the week must have you up in arms. The usual Congressional budget battles, they are way worse than usual. And to top it all off, American troops are being withdrawn from Syria and Afghanistan. That's big. Possibly because of that, and for reasons he laid out in a historic and blunt letter of resignation, General James Mattis is out as Secretary of Defense. That could be huge, and we're gonna talk about that today. With all of that going on, we begin today with a question. Do Republicans have a problem with women?
2: This is Debbie Nifong, and I'm calling from Westchester, Pennsylvania. I feel I'm still a moderately conservative Republican woman, but the Republican Party I was a part of just no longer exists. I'm Lisa from Palm Coast. I'm 51 years old and have been a registered Republican all my life, albeit a moderate Republican. With one exception, I voted Republican in every presidential election prior to the 2016 election. I did not vote for Trump. This is Kelly from Norman, Oklahoma. I have always been a Republican
0: since I was old enough to vote and pretty much just voted pro-life. But as I've started paying attention, particularly since 2016, I began to realize that the Republican Party doesn't reflect my values at all. We tend to have lots
3: of gender gap. In fact, it's, it's the reason I got in business 30 years ago, <laughs> because they figured if I'm a woman, maybe I can help them with the woman problem. That last
1: voice, that's Kim Alfano, a Republican strategist, by the way. We'll hear more from her in a bit. The problem isn't just an anecdotal one. The 2018 exit poll data reflects more of the same. Democrats won with women by 19 points. Efforts to recruit new women candidates have faltered, and while a record number of women will be serving in the next Congress come January, most of those women are Democrats. There will actually be fewer Republican women on the Hill in 2019 than there were this year. And overall, just 23 Republican women will serve in the next House compared to 108 Democratic women. And there are more signs of trouble for the party playing out in the sunflower state. In the last two weeks, a handful of Republican women in the Kansas State Legislature have defected to join the Democratic caucus. State Senator Barbara Bollier and State Representative Stephanie Clayton both represent suburban districts that went for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Their decision to cross the aisle won't tip the balance of power to Democrats. Republicans still have a solid majority in the state legislature. But they join me now to explain the deeply personal reasons they changed their party affiliation. Representative Clayton begins.
4: I grew up volunteering for moderate Republicans. I first ran in 2010, uh, and that was a really heavy Tea Party year. So I did not make it through that primary. But then after redistricting in 2012, ran again and was successful and have served in the House for the past six years. When you define moderate Republican, what does that mean? Well, it's funny. The term has sort of evolved over the years. It used to mean that a moderate Republican tended to support a woman's right to choose, which I do, as does Senator Bollier. But as years have passed, the biggest dividing line I felt was that moderate Republicans were strong supporters of fully funded public education and conservative Republicans
0: did not support that. And that Hmm. I would say exactly that.
4: For those folks who haven't
1: followed Kansas politics, maybe you can walk us through that process, how education has become this dividing debate between more moderate and more conservative Republicans.
4: Well, education is a huge portion of the Kansas budget. And so most conservative Republicans want to shrink government. They want to shrink all functions of government. Bring in the Brownback tax cuts, and those obviously caused major issues with funding government. Lawsuits ensued. Uh, The Supreme Court consistently ruled against the state when it came to these various school funding lawsuits. And finally, after years of trying to find every way possible to avoid just doing their job, just funding schools, and we finally put together a plan where everyone was at the table. Conservatives were in charge of it. And so what ultimately caused me to leave the party was when party leadership, both in the House and Senate side, said, oh, well, this plan costs too much. We're going to get rid of it and start over. We were so close to fixing it. And then they just decided, no, we're not going to do it. And part of the reason is, is because so many moderates were voted out of office that these conservatives now in power know that they can – go ahead and pass a burn-it-all-down school funding plan that will cause drama that really our state doesn't need. So, Representative Clayton, it was the issue of education funding that pushed you to
1: leave the party. Senator Bollier, I'm curious, what was it for you that was that final straw?
0: The true final straw for me came this last year when the Republican Party added to its platform some language about transgender issues, basically saying God created only man and woman and went on from there and how we can't support transgender choices. Uh, and, and that, for me, it was just when are we going to move on from these things that aren't people's business and don't protect uh, people from discrimination and deal with things like school funding or taking care of our highway system, or dealing with the water issues in our western part of the state. We need to focus on the things that really matter. and this just this was the end of the line for me. That was where the moral crisis for me is like, what do I do now? And I've tried to change this party and help it stay moderate towards a centrist ideology, and I failed. You know, I've just been going through it since that time. What do I need to do? And have finally come to the place. It's time to move on. What has the response been from your constituents about your switch? For me, it has been overwhelmingly positive. In fact, (laughs) mind-blowingly. <laughs> I had no idea how many of my constituents had already made the decision to leave the Republican Party. That has been eye-opening. Uh, but coupled with that are just the number of people, even if they themselves plan to stay Republican, have fully supported my decision and the reasons behind my decision-making and are absolutely supportive of me saying, oh, I'll always vote for you. You you are standing person over politics. And that's what matters most to me or us.
4: Yeah, I'd say my response has been about 94 percent positive uh, from constituents. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, 94 (laughs) percent. Yeah, thereabouts. It's like I'm calculating it in my head. Um, But, you know, certainly uh, I and I would imagine Senator Bollier, we've heard from uh, people across the country, um, you know, boy, there's a guy in North Carolina who was not happy with me at all. Um, but, you know, I'm not on his ballot, and so it doesn't matter. I'm wondering if you think we're going to see what happened with you
1: all in districts that look like yours, more suburban districts, with Republicans saying, I'm not comfortable in this party anymore, and you all will be known as the first of the, the movement to the Democratic Party,
0: I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know if you would you will see it on an elected level. I think mm. you'll see it more in at a local level of just people. And for instance, I have seen it with women I participate at my church with a at a class called especially for women, and uh, the questions raised from women like that they are struggling with the Republican Party's stances on immigration and, and, you know, build the wall and don't take care of those people and get them out and Medicaid expansion and caring for others. And so that sense that women bring uh, to the table of love one another, take care of one another, follow those teachings, they're not seeing that and, and it, from a Republican leadership perspective place, let's look at this Republican Women's Club that we go to once a month when we can. The vast majority of those who participate in that are 80 and above in age and so, or or close to that. And so you can see that, that there just aren't younger women. They've moved on. And whether or not they're Republican or not, uh, I would say it has a lot to do, again, with their ability to plan their pregnancies. I mean, just simple things like that. Uh, But an, an appearance of support for just the family in general. I think that's where women are moving towards. Do either of you think you could
1: see yourself returning to the Republican Party?
4: Not at this juncture, no. I think it would be maybe 20 or 30 years before it'll get back to where it's what I believed it to be, it's it's so difficult because when I think about the principles that really shaped me as what I believed to be a Republican were really the things that my own parents grew up with. And so, you know, my parents were born in late 40s, early 50s. And so I had this belief system and this allegiance to something that was really more of an idea in the past than what currently exists now or even existed 10, 15 years ago.
0: And and I want to add to this from a different perspective, not about myself, but the party itself. I'm not a person that makes big changes like that quickly, easily, or frequently. Like, this is the first time in my life to have such a big change. So, with that being said, I do hope the party will move itself more centrist and... People in the party will stand up to leadership and say, that isn't the direction we want to go. So that, you know, two strong parties are much better for this country than this continuing greater and greater divide. People want good government. They want government uh, officials to work together to solve problems. They don't like this my side or the highway mentality, or I'm the winner and everybody else is the loser. Uh, And so the bigger overreaching story here for me is will the Republican Party make some changes as a result of this? I hope so. Senator Barbara Bollier, Representative Stephanie Clayton, thank you both for
1: joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Barbara Beaulieu is the state senator in Kansas's 7th district and Stephanie Clayton is a representative in State House District 19. So we just heard from two moderate women legislators who defected from the Republican party in Kansas. Are they a canary in the coal mine for Republicans, a sign that suburban women have abandoned the party in the same way southern conservatives abandoned the Democrats in the 1990s? Can the Republican Party survive if it's hemorrhaging women voters at the rate it did in 2018? And if so, what can the Republicans do to win these voters back? For that, we turn to Kim Alfano, a Republican strategist and CEO of Alfano Communications. Kim agrees the GOP does have a problem with women, but she points out that the problem
3: is not a new one, it's just not getting any better. It's gotten worse in recent years, I think, because polarizations on all fronts have gotten worse in recent years. Um, And Donald Trump doesn't help us much with that. So you get that. There are a
1: number of other Republicans, other Republican women, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who seem to get this. Um, She wrote a letter to the NRCC, the Republican Campaign Committee, a couple weeks back, Saying she wanted the committee to really dig deep into analyzing what happened in the 28 election. She said, We fell short across multiple demographics, including women. So the fact that you know this and Stefanik knows it is fine. But do the people that I don't know are running Congress, that are running the White House, appreciate and understand it? And can they do anything to make it better?
3: Well, I would separate out running the Congress and the White House. I'm not sure the White House gets it because they just have so many other up ballot pressures, as we say, in the business, that that's a, a long shot for the Trump crew to think about. In Congress, I think they get it. I mean, you have guys like Tom Cole who, um, while male and conservative and from the Midwest, absolutely, fundamentally gets the political uh, calculus of what's going on and and is there to help. Um but I think that you know we've we've cracked the code in in governorships. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, we've cracked the code in some state houses. Although that's changing back to being a deficit for Republicans. But when you get to the federal level, it's so defined by party. Um, it's not a all politics is local thing, especially in the congressional level of things. Um, that. I feel like we, we, we as women have to carry the baggage of our party, and, and when you have someone like Donald Trump at the top, it's hard to say that this is you know, the party of diversity and women and, and all of those things that would make women candidates, I think, uh, have an easier time of it. So it's a particular problem in the Congress, I think, but it's not a new one. It's one we've faced for years and years and years, and I would agree with Representative Stefanik that it starts in the primaries. Um, it starts where your parties are defined, and our parties are deeply defined in primaries. The primary races don't look a lot like the general races because you're fighting within your party, and it's it's really just a, a fight for the heart of the party. And I think we can do a better job there, and I agree with her. That's the place to play. And so
1: how do you do that? There seems to be a big difference just psychologically between how Democratic voters and Republican voters view The role of the primaries. For many Democrats, they see that an important characteristic in a candidate is that candidates um, just personal makeup, their race, their ethnicity, their gender. Republicans say to me, we just want to vote for the person who is the best qualified. We're not interested in any of those other characteristics. Is that a fair way to look at how Republicans look at the primary process and why it's difficult for Republican women to run
3: as women? I think it's more of an ideological thing for Republicans than it is for Democrats. I think Republicans can be strategically smart, but I think that, you know, as part of being conservative, that's sticking to your zero tolerance moral code sometimes. And and I think that we have more of that, whereas you know, being moderate or or progressive or liberal even, just by its nature, is a more inclusive um, ideology. Now, that's not to say that Republicans can't be inclusive. We certainly can. But I think that the Republican roots go back to being, you know, conservative values and economically conservative values and, and socially conservative values, although less so these days, everything seems to turn on economic values. And I think that that's why we have a tendency to be hijacked by the Tea Party, by the Christian coalition, by now the Trump side of the party in the primaries, because they be, they tend to be ideological litmus tests, purity tests and battles. The more we can get candidates that are going to win, the better off we are. And that's the epic battle within the party to define what success is. Success is not falling on your sword over a, a particular ideological you know, litmus test, success is actually getting into office and making a change. And that's a hard battle to fight when things are so emotional and visceral uh, in primaries. But that's what we need to do. Thinking to 2020
1: and the presidential campaign there, the president did win white women voters. He lost women overall. Is it enough for the president to just basically run the same playbook as he did in 2016 to win the White House, or does he need to do better among certain groups of voters?
3: Well, he's not new anymore. He's a known quantity. So yeah, he absolutely has to do better. Listen, um, he has been, he has a very, very, very hardcore base that will support him through thick and thin, but that base has dwindled considerably since he's been in office from, you know, from, from the, say, 40 percent where 10% were just willing to give him a shot because he was new and different, it, we're now down in the, the low 30s and maybe even into the 20s of people that will give him the benefit of the doubt no matter what. He doesn't get back those folks um, that gave him the benefit of the doubt and now are just you know realizing that they're not getting what they expected. So he has got to come up with a way to find new voters, and so so do all Republicans. If we're going to be defined at the top by Donald Trump, We have to figure out a way to make who Donald Trump is, maybe not his personality, but his policy, appealing to somebody else other than that that 20, 30 percent, or else we're going to become just a minority party for life. The Republican Party has gone through this before. You know, like I said, the Christian coalition and the Tea Party, we've done this a couple times, and we come out of it eventually. And I think when Donald Trump is no longer president, whether it's in 2020 or 2024, We will come out of it again and and redefine. But for success in the short term, we've got to start addressing that now.
1: Kim Alfano is a Republican strategist and CEO of Alfano Communications. When confronted with the question of whether he has a problem with female voters, the president is fond of saying that he won women voters in 2016. The exit polls, however, show that Trump lost women by 13 points. He carried a narrow majority of women white women. But the more we dig into those 2016 numbers and the results of 2018, the less stable this support, even from white women, looks. Here to help us understand exactly what we mean when we talk about the white women within Trump's base is Robert P. Jones. He's the CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute and the author of the book, The End of White Christian America.
5: The real break is between white evangelical Protestant women and kind of all other women. I mean, that really is the big break there. It's quite remarkable, actually. So if we're thinking about, I'll get all the adjectives in here, <laughs> white, non-college women, and then the the divide within that is evangelical, non-evangelical. And if we look at that break, those non-evangelical uh, women in that category, and they make about 10% of voters nationally, and so they'll be bigger in states that have a higher white population. But if we look just at a few things, for example, in the midterm vote, that group voted nearly 6 and 10 for Democrats mm. in, in the midterm vote. If you compare that to their white evangelical counterparts here, 75% voted for Republicans.
1: And talk about white women who have a college degree, but also identify as evangelical, which is the bigger driver for them, education or religion? That
5: is a great question. And, you know, we actually have pretty good data that evangelical identity tends to trump gender. And
1: and education.
5: uh, Yeah. And so inside the evangelical world, what has happened as um, this group, again, has shrunk, right, from being, you know, nearly a quarter of the population just a decade ago down to only 15 percent of the population, they've lost the pieces of that group that gave them more internal diversity, right? So they've lost younger people, uh, they've lost more liberal or moderate people, they've lost Democrats. And so it's become a more homogeneous group. And so what that means is that all kinds of differences start falling out, like the diploma divide inside of white evangelical Protestants Mm -hmm. is almost nowhere, like in Mississippi the midterm vote there, you could find no difference between whites with a college education and whites w- without. Um, it was really just race, um, you know, white, race and evangelical identity all the way down the line. The generational divides start flattening out. In our pre-election survey for the midterm elections, for example, we found no differences. 72% of older evangelicals, 72% of younger evangelicals said they were voting for the Republican candidate going into the, the midterm election. So it is, I think the differences inside of that white evangelical community As they become more homogeneous, it has really flattened out Mm -hmm. the other kinds of differences that we would typically see.
1: I think something that many folks struggle to understand is how someone with a background and personality of Donald Trump can have as the core of his base, the strongest, most consistent group of support from evangelical Christians – who at one point we, we called them values voters, right. the moral majority. Can you help us uh, understand how those voters square that circle?
5: Yeah. Well, what happened, I think, is i described this as something of a shotgun marriage between Donald Trump and white evangelical Protestants. I mean, he was not sort of the intended planned candidate for anyone. Right. I mean, it was a surprise even to Donald Trump, I think, when he won on Super Tuesday. I mean, that was the real turning point because, you know, there you had this heavy raft of southern states And everybody was thinking, okay, well, Ted Cruz is going to kind of – this is his moment, right, to kind of come back, get the momentum in the race. And Donald Trump kind of mopped the floor with him from Michigan to Mississippi. And I think everyone was like, oh, actually, there's something different going on here. And I think the real difference was that in many ways Ted Cruz's campaign was – promising some things around the edges, you know, like around religious liberty and those kinds of things. But he really wasn't, I think, challenging the entire shift of the country. And Donald Trump came in and said, no, 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 I'm going to give you back your country. I mean, that was the way he talked. That was a much more powerful appeal than Ted Cruz, who was really one of them. The whole make America great last word again, right? That piece. And so I've just started dubbing them nostalgia voters, right? From values voters to nostalgia voters. And it was that promised not to just kind of work around the edges and concede the cultural changes but to stand up and say no we're going to stop it we're going to build a wall we're going to restore power to the christian churches he said this over and over in evangelical settings at the back end of the campaign and i think it was that appeal to turn back the clock back to a time when white evangelical protestants in particular had more cultural power more political power you know and and i think uh many progressives have underestimated the role that the obergefell decision legalizing marriage equality played as a moment of panic really among uh, christian conservatives in the country that they had lost the country
1: so as a core if this is the president's core group of supporters and he can get these folks motivated and turn them out are there enough of them in 2020 and then help us think about this to 2024 yeah. and 2028 Is it enough to just be able to turn those voters out if you're not, to use a religious phrase, converting people who maybe aren't as supportive of the president to come out and vote for you?
5: Yeah. Well, here I think it's really worth remembering how close this last election was. I think people forget, you know, that it really came down to three states and like 80-something thousand votes in three states. So. That's important. And I just think we are at a tipping point in the country, right? So uh, a rainstorm could make a difference Mm -hmm. uh, in an election like that. What what we're seeing, again, is that white evangelical Protestants have been able to maintain their presence at about a quarter of the voting population, even as their population has begun to slide. If you're thinking about, you know, an analysis of the American electorate and population in terms of kind of white evangelical Christians or even all white Christians – Our best estimates are that it'll be 2024 before we actually reach the tipping point at the ballot box that we've already reached basically a decade earlier.
1: If we're talking about a tipping point now with the Republican Party and women, a realignment period on education, religion, race, which one of those things becomes the most salient going into this next election?
5: Yeah. No, I I, I think – When is the last time we saw a lot of elected officials in the middle of their terms switching party or are at an election point switching party? And it was really in the wake of, you know, what we often talk about as the great white switch, you know, of um, whites, particularly in the South, moving from being solid Democrats to being solid Republicans. And really, that was in the wake of a big cultural shift after the civil rights movement. And it was really all about whites being disgruntled as the Democratic Party became identified as the party. Of civil rights, And I think it's not an exaggeration to say we're seeing something of that kind of sea change. And the composition of the parties are sorting themselves not only in ideological ways, but they're sorting themselves in terms of race and religion as well, right? So the Republican Party 10 years ago was 80% white and Christian. Today, self-identified Republicans are 70% white and Christian. So even with the demographic shift, they still are 70% white and Christian. The Democratic Party a decade ago was 50% white and Christian. Today, it's 30%. White and Christians. So now we have the Republican party who is more than twice Uh, as likely to be white and Christian than the Democratic Party. And I think it falls along lines of gender as well. It's a kind of worldview shift here. that The Democratic Party is coalescing around women's rights, LGBT rights, um, uh, racial inequality and discrimination, Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement. I mean, all these things are happening largely on the Democratic side of politics. And we're getting these kind of partisan polarized reactions uh, to that, and the Republicans are digging in. The problem is that those all things appeal highly to younger americans right so it puts the republican party i think in a in a tough place and the the younger generation is the most diverse generation that we have and so you know if, if these trends continue we really are i think in danger of having essentially a white christian nationalist party and the party of everybody else
1: robert jones thank you so much for coming in and talking to me glad to be here What are you thinking about the state of Republican women voters? This is Mary Lee Holman from McKinney. I'm a Republican woman. I feel optimistic about the future of the party. Donald Trump is a wake-up call.
2: It can only get better. I'm Lisa from Palm Coast. I'm 51 years old and have been a registered Republican all my life, albeit a moderate Republican. With one exception, I voted Republican in every presidential election prior to the 2016 election. I did not vote for Trump. In fact, I changed my party affiliation for the midterms this year because if Trump and the people who support him represent the future of the Republican Party, I
4: don't want any part in it. My name is Suzanne Venker. I live in St. Louis, Missouri.
3: I have voted both ways in the past, but I do typically vote Republican. I would say I'm hopeful for the GOP. I think that this is a very difficult time in history with this particular president. He isn't politically correct. That I think we're divided between people who can separate the emotions about how they how they feel about this president as a person from his policy. More Republican women than Democrat women, at least, um, are able to do that.
2: My name's Sarah, and I am from Salt Lake City, Utah. I was a Republican when I was younger, and I was simply a Republican because I was following my parents' footsteps. As soon as I realized what was truly right and wrong, I switched sides and have never looked
1: back. Lots of good stuff there from you. Hope you enjoyed our discussion on this. I know it's going to be something we watch all the way through 2020.
0: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently...
1: And now for a take on the resignation of Secretary of Defense General James Mattis. With all the news coming out of Washington this week, it got me thinking about whether what we are seeing represents an actual tipping point. Are we headed to new and uncharted territory? Or is this simply more of the same kind of uncertainty and norm-breaking we've seen from this president over the past two years? So I called up a couple of smart reporters who spend a lot of time thinking about and covering these issues.
2: The Trump presidency has seen a lot of dramatic moments and moments that people viewed as turning points.
1: That's Mark Landler, White House correspondent for The New York Times.
2: But I think this week was truly different. Uh, the combination of the federal government uh, hurtling toward a shutdown and the sudden resignation of Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, who was really viewed as one of the anchors, if not the anchor, of this White House uh, in national security, has really uh, jarred the Capitol and suggested that this administration is spinning out of control, perhaps in a way we haven't seen over the last two years. This prologue.
1: And that's Zeke Miller, White House reporter for the Associated Press.
2: Every time the president has seemed to defy norms across the boundaries of what members of his own party deemed to be acceptable American policies. Um, You know, there have been protests for a day and really no lingering uh, consequence. It's possible this happens again. It's possible also that this is a watershed moment that sort of changes that paradigm. It's it's really too soon to tell.
1: But if you've been listening for these past few years, maybe we shouldn't be all that surprised. Mark Landler again.
2: Well, like many things, Uh, involving President Trump. Um, These news developments are uh, jolting, but they're not surprising, particularly when you put them into a historic context. Uh, President Trump has long said uh, that uh, he wanted to withdraw the United States from messy foreign wars. It was part of his campaign, uh, and he has stuck to it. Uh, And so it is not a surprise that he would want to draw down troops in Syria and Afghanistan. Uh, Similarly, he said throughout the campaign one of his bedrock promises was to build a border wall with Mexico. Uh, So it is also not a surprise that he would hang tough on funding for the border wall. Um, So sometimes these events play out in chaotic, unexpected ways that appear to be shocking, but they're really very much in keeping with the president's uh, promises and with his uh, character as an insurgent leader.
1: And yet these veteran reporters see the president in a very different position than the one he's been in since coming to office.
2: President is uh, more isolated on his uh, move in Syria and perhaps his his, uh, contemplated move in Afghanistan than on almost any other foreign policy decision he's made during his presidency. Well, this is really the culmination of sort of the drip, drip, drip of where we've seen the president uh, shed uh, these guardrails and controlling forces around him since he took the White House uh, almost two years ago now, and as he's really remade uh, the White House in his own interest.
1: But here's the bigger and more consequential takeaway from the moves by the president this week.
2: I just think it's remarkable uh, if you think about what happened over the past uh, 24 hours with President Trump's moves on Syria and Afghanistan. Really, uh, these are military commitments um, that grew out of uh, the aftermath of the Iraq war in the case of Syria and grew out of the uh, terrorist attacks of uh, 9-11 in the case of Afghanistan. And suddenly, we're seeing these commitments uh, be overturned by President Trump. So uh, it's worth stepping back and looking at the historic context here. President Trump isn't just um, making decisions to mollify his base. He's actually changing years of American uh, military and foreign policy in the process. And so these are the moments when you realize just how consequential the 2016 election proved to be.
1: The other big question looming over Washington, will his own party, specifically Republican senators who took to Twitter Thursday to express concern with the Mattis resignation and with Trump's Syria policy, deny him a policy victory? Or will Trump find some rhetorical pushback, but little actual resistance from lawmakers in his own party? Only time will tell. Before I let you go, I wanted to give you a heads up. There won't be a new podcast next week, but lucky for you, there are two out today. That's right, two for the price of one. Our other podcast is three veteran TV writers talking about political shows. It's not to be missed. It's really funny. So get both podcasts, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Amy Walter. This is The Takeaway. See you in 2019.